आई एम सुमित गुप्ता एंड दिस इज चूजिंग लीडरशिप अ पॉडकास्ट फॉर हाई परफॉर्मर्स विद बिग ड्रीम्स एट वर्क एंड लाइफ दिस इज अ पॉडकास्ट फॉर पीपल हु नो डीप इन साइड दैट देयर इज मोर हैव यू अचीव्ड अ ग्रेट डील ऑफ सक्सेस बट ऑन द इनसाइड यू स्टिल फील एम्प्टी एंड लाइक एन इम्पोस्टर डू अदर पीपल सी यू एज अ स्ट्रॉन्ग लीडर एंड यू वंडर वाई इट स्टिल फील्स सो लोनली एंड सफोकेटिंग The aim of this podcast is not to provide you more content but instead shift the context under which you operate. I dare to speak to the tremendous power which you already have rather than what you believe are your strengths and limitations. This podcast is called Choosing Leadership because that is what leadership is, a choice. And this is the leadership journey series. I am interviewing leaders with an interesting story to learn how they got where they are today. we all have a lot to learn from each other's stories of where we started where we are now and our successes and struggles on the way with this series of interviews my attempt is to give leaders an opportunity to share their stories and for all of us to learn from their generous sharing moki makura is the executive director of africa no filter which is working to shift the narrative about african people and africa as a continent She has also worked with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation previously and prior to that she was a well-known TV presenter producer author publisher and a successful entrepreneur which she calls jumps from one tree to another in the interview she talks about her trust in the universe and how that allows her to take risks and venture into very different territories we talk about how growing up in nigeria gave her such a boost of confidence that she doesn't see failure as anything except learning she also highlighted how her parents never told her that she cannot do this or that and which allowed her to take big risks in her career hi moki welcome to the show hi samit nice to meet you same here wonderful to have you here wonderful to have a have a chat with you and to begin with can you maybe share with our listeners a little bit about who you are and what do you do okay i usually start my introduction saying i was you know born in nigeria i went was educated in the uk and then about 25 years ago i moved to south africa and i honestly feel that's where so many big moments in my life happened so i'm i guess the best way to describe my career in terms of describing me is i i see i i like stories i am a communicator and storytelling is a medium that i i really work with and that is actually what i do now as a living i have a job where i'm the executive director of a not profit called africano filter which is a an organization that was set up by a number of um uk and us funders to help shift harmful and stereotypical narratives about africa and because we understand how narratives occur which are through stories told persistently over time our theory of change is that in order to shift or change a narrative you've got to introduce new different stories so we fund storytellers so i'm very much in the storytelling space but prior to that i've written books i've written a book about africa's greatest entrepreneurs i've done the documentary lifestyle series called living it about africa's richest famous i published other books i did a series of um books called nolly books which were really 
trying to get younger people to read and we turned them into films. My hardcore job, so prior to this role, I was at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation heading up communications. I'm still trying to figure out how to tell stories about development work on the continent. And yeah, so I've done a lot. I'm, I'm old. <laughs> but when I think about how best to describe myself increasingly, I realize it's around communications and around storytelling. Wonderful. I, I prefer to use the word wise rather. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, I'll tell you, I entered into, I entered one of these alcohol sites, you know, it says before you're allowed to go into the site, it was actually for Johnny Walker and it pops up a little screen and you have to put your date of birth in and then it shoots you a quick screen grab and says you are X and it tells you your age. And I suddenly thought, my God, internet doesn't let you forget how old you are. You may call yourself wise. This internet, this website told me how old I was. Yeah. And as you spoke about story and narratives, and you mentioned briefly about living in multiple different countries. What, what is what is your story? Where are you coming from? I'm Nigerian. I was, like I said, I was born in Nigeria, but I spent a lot of time outside of Nigeria. But I think where it matters, where it counts in my heart. And the way I always, the question I ask people who don't live where they were born or where their parents were born is like, where do you want to be buried? And when I think about that, I want to be buried in Nigeria or my ashes sprinkled in Nigeria, that's home. So I think first and foremost, I am Nigerian. And secondly, I am an African because I think I've lived a lot of my life out of Nigeria, but increasing a lot more of it in on the continent. So I, I live in South Africa now. Through my career, I see myself as very entrepreneurial and somebody who just gets up and does things. So I've done multiple projects. And I used to have a talk <laughs> about my career, which was called Jumping Trees. And the reason why I used that analogy was that I never climbed the tree to get to the top of it. I went from the top of one tree to the top mm -hmm. of another, to the top of another. So I was jumping trees. It was it's a different perspective on life. And it requires some to be brave because you don't have that experience of, oh, I've been doing this for years. You learn as you're doing it. So I think when I think about myself or when people think about me, they, they, I'm brave. I think I'm brave. I, mm. I step out, I take risk. I do. I believe in taking risk and I believe in doing it first. And in fact, Nike's um, slogan, just do it, is the slogan that I live by. Wonderful. And as you spoke about those jumps from one tree to another, can you share maybe a couple of those key jumps in your life and how has that shaped you as a person? Anna. Yeah, the sort of things I've done, I produced the my first sort of documentary series. I got a commission from this Pan-African platform here called Mnet. I'd never done it before. So I set up a production company and I went off and I did this. That was jumping trees because most of the times you'll work in a production company, mm -hmm. you'll work your way up. I was the executive producer of, <laughs> of this concept. So that was a tree I jumped on. The first book I ever wrote got published and picked up by Penguin Books. That was Africa's Greatest Entrepreneurs. So I went from, not that I had a small title here, I went to one of the leading publishers and all of a sudden I had a book out and and all that followed with it. I, what are the other things I've done? I've done so many things. Yeah, even when, like I set up a, a publishing company, I'd never worked in a publishing company. I just set it up. So now I'm running a publishing company. Again, that was jumping trees into a totally new industry. I don't often talk about this, but I used to be an actress as well in that I got asked because I was on TV presenting stuff. I got asked to be in this drama series called Jacob's Cross, which was 
it was like Dallas. I don't know if you remember Dallas. It was an oil sort of dynasty, Nigerian dynasty, and a nice South African family. It was very, and I I got a lead role in it. So I went from never being an actress to having being a, a lead on a what turned out to be a really groundbreaking and major drama series in Africa in, on the continent. So I went straight from never having gone to act, <laughs> drama school, never having been in any drama productions to being in a top um, drama. And that required a lot of being brave because I'd never acted before. And I remember the producer the last day when we when the series ended and she came on stage and she just reminded me what I was like the first day. And I remember thinking, gosh, you've just got to trust the universe that when you do mm. these things, when you jump onto a tree or you, you know, jump from one thing to another, just trust the universe, which requires a lot of confidence in both yourself and the universe. But I think I've been very good at that, knowing that I land on my feet. Yeah. And, and I want to come to that <clears throat> trusting the universe part. But before I'm, I'm very curious about what took you down these very different looking paths, like from being an actress to being in to being what you do today and yeah so what has been the curiosity or the connecting threads between these jobs between the books the series of books even the the acting there weren't the thing that i think brings them all together is that they were all telling stories about the continent it really bothered me i i was i lived in england in 1985 i was in my late teens that's when live aid the concert happened when Bob Geldof and all these superstars were talking about Africa. It was a very poor continent. There were faces of starving children and they needed to help. Anybody who had one pound could help an African, a poor African. And I remember just being really angry. I was African and that was not the Africa that I knew. And I thought they're selling the world this single image of the continent. And that was a really pivotal moment. It really shaped a lot of things I did since because I started writing. I wrote, you know, articles about, I remember one of them, I saw it recently called Three White Men. That was Bob Geldof and Bono. And I don't know who the third one was, the one that, the, you know, three white men who wanted to save Africa. I started doing a lot of things like that. The book I wrote, Africa's Greatest Entrepreneurs, it was really about saying, look, hold on a minute. They're entrepreneurs who are world-class on the continent, doing amazing things, making money, running businesses, but we didn't know about them. They weren't, and the internet is not, was not as prolific then as it is now. So the book came about on because of that. And the series, Living It, that I did was really about trying to showcase Africans in a different light. And the series was about lifestyles of the rich and famous in Africa. And again, nobody was seeing those images on the continent. And I remember after the series was done, I approached a European, I think actually somebody in, in Holland or Amsterdam to see if we could get it on a station in Europe somewhere. And I remember the response that I got was that, no, we can't take this. We can't sell it because Europe is not ready to see Africans living well. That was the response I got. So it was this perpetual sort of battle against how the world sees Africa, which was very different to how I saw Africa and how I saw myself as an African. So a lot of the things I did and I'm doing, because my current job is entirely all about shifting narratives about Africa, all of the, that sort of feeling has informed many of the things. Yeah, it's been about how do I present the continent in, in its best light? That's mm. what's been a driving force. 
Yes. And and was that living in England and sh- and seeing that uh, narrative that shaped you or that pushed you to to take those different jumps with the with a common thread of uh, telling a different story? Let's go back to that. I think that 1985 Live Aid concert was the trigger moment that, you know, made me start thinking about what can I do to, you know, change the way we do things. There's been many things that have happened, many instances in my life. I lived in the UK, so you're faced with people judging you. I remember I'd applied for a job and I was sitting in a recruitment agent's office and he said, okay, I think you're great, but I can't put you forward for this job because they're not ready for a black woman yet. There's another job I had where I was told that you're not Jewish, so there's no way you're going to get further. So yes, there was this image that because you were black, you weren't as good and you were African, you were even not really not as good because I've always said there's a hierarchy. It's probably white men at the top, then black men, then white women, and then black women. And then at the bottom of that is African women. So I think there's a couple of ladders one has to climb up. But yeah, I think there's a lot of reasons why I yeah I did and that. How how did you dealt with that? Because that sounds like like very discriminatory or or even racist. And also as a young girl, as a teenager, how did you react to that and how has that shaped you? Look, I think the first most important thing is I, my formative years were spent in Nigeria. And there is something about that continent that gives us all such a boost of confidence. I stepped out in the world as if I was in first class and the world had to fall behind me. So whilst it did happen, it wasn't something at the front of my mind because I didn't grow up believing I was second rate. I grew up mm-hmm. believing I was a proud Nigerian and still am. And that makes a very big difference. So I was coming from probably a different place to what somebody who'd grown up there and had been faced with racism and right from an early stage. And in fact, the first time I remember <laughs> a racist incident was when I was in boarding school and I'd been there for a couple of years. And then they had a South African girl come to the school, white South African. I remember she walked into the room and saw me sitting there and she said, who's that black girl? And to be honest, I'd never, ever heard myself described as a black girl. So I even looked to see who she's talking about. Who is this black girl? Because I'd never seen myself as that. And ironically, they put us in the same room together and we had an almighty massive fight. And that's the first sort of experience I had of there were people with racist attitudes. And I must have been about 15 or 16. Yeah. And now I want to come to that uh, trusting the universe part. As you connect these threads in your life, as you jumped from one tree to another, what has allowed you to actually sustain yourself and to maintain the level of leadership requires to not just lead yourself, but also lead other people around you? I think one of the big things that I think I've been very happy and blessed with is the innate sense within myself that whatever I do, I can do it. I think there's, you need to really, first of all, believe in yourself to have other people believe in you. So I have, and there's been a real strong say, even if it doesn't work, what will I learn from it? And I haven't been scared of failure. If I was a, an entrepreneur, I started up a little fashion business and it didn't work. I started up a little restaurant business in London. It didn't work, but it didn't stop me starting other things. I got bitten once and I thought, okay, well, I know about that and I don't want to do that. And in my, my um, storage room, I have a lot of books. I have a lot of books that I didn't sell. And I remember asking my husband to fund this massive print run because I needed to bring the price of the books to a certain point. So I needed to print a lot. And he did. And um, I've got a lot of them still because we didn't sell the volume. So failure is part and parcel of who I am because I don't see it as failure. I just see it as the experience. And I think that is a huge sort of 
difference in confidence booster because I never failed. I just learned. I want to key in on that because that's such, such a profound statement that I, I never failed. Uh, and I know that failure is can be a very heavy word uh, for leaders and entrepreneurs. And uh, I just want to key in that that is not trivial. That is that is key. Or in fact, that powers that those jumps and that trust which you mentioned. And as as you spoke about narratives, as you spoke about stories, is that also is that a continental thing, or is that something which you have from your family, or is was that a family narrative, or something growing up in 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 Nigeria that you had this confidence or this sense about failure or taking risks? No, I don't think so. I was the youngest child, and I think there's research that shows that the youngest child in the family, because I do believe in birth order, youngest child syndrome is that they take tend to take more risk because they grow up a little faster because they want to do whatever their older siblings done. So yeah, I believe that. And they probably get a lot of attention because they're the youngest. So I think that's probably what I got. And also just the fact that I had parents who never stopped me doing anything. I don't remember ever being told you can't do this or you can't do that. Yeah. I think things like that, there's certainly an element of it. It starts at home starts with your upbringing, but a lot of it, I think you acquire over time as well. So is there something that people misunderstand about you? Oh yes. The angry black woman. Yeah. I've worked in various roles where, because I am quite strong and I have an opinion. I remember the first time was actually in South Africa where I had a job and I had to, I advised a client on something I thought that he was doing, I didn't think it was the right approach. And I thought as my, as my role, as his client facing person, that was my role to advise him what to do. And I remember him saying, and telling, going to tell my boss at the time, Moki does not understand my business. And rather than think that I'd done anything wrong, I put it down to the fact that he couldn't bear being told that he was wrong by somebody, quite frankly, I was black female. This was South Africa, apartheid had just ended. And the only black woman he probably interacted with was his maid who told, who he told what to do. So th there's always been that you people aren't necessarily ready to hear certain types of people tell them what's right or what's wrong. And again, I come from a very confident race of people. Nigerians are supremely confident that we're good or bad. And I'm very articulate. I think I'm very well educated. I'm very quick. I speak very quickly. And all of these things can sometimes rub people up the wrong way. And I think, um, so when I say, when you ask me, have I, have I been misunderstood? I think my intentions might have been misunderstood, but I think a lot of it to do is, is profile, profiling, it's unconscious bias. It's a lot of things that people do inadvertently, but yeah, I, as I get older, as you, as you call it, as I get wiser, you, you become more comfortable in your skin and you, I learn to soften the edges. And there's one thing that I was told in one of the organizations I worked with, which has really helped, is assume best intent. Before you get angry, assume this person hasn't done this or whatever, assume that they have a really good reason why they haven't. Assume best intent. And that's really been, you know, a guiding force. That and the fact that I, because I am older and wiser, I've done a lot. I think I have a lot to give back. So I position myself in my leadership as a coach. So there are times when people have done things, have failed or have gone wrong. And so I don't get angry about that because I'm glad we did it. But I always ask, so what have we learned? Can you see the lesson in this? Because if you can't, <laughs> then that lesson has been an expensive actual failure. So I think failure is all about learning. So yeah, that's something that I've tried to 
use to inform my approach with leadership and, and my team. That resonates very well with the, with the kind of work that I do. And I do see the role of narratives which, which occur in every business boardroom, in every team, whether it's about racism or whether it's about two different industries or two different departments in a company. And what you just mentioned about assuming best intent, I think uh, that's very powerful. And, and now you, you are actually working to shifting narratives. Mm. So how do you, what, or what have you learned in mm. shifting narratives? Because many times these narratives are invisible to us. Like, so when we mm. misunderstand and when these narratives clash, they are in the subconscious, they are not conscious. So how do you shift? How do you consciously shift a narrative? What have you learned and what mm. can you share? It's funny, I had a similar conversation with somebody who was look, asking me what would our approach be to shifting narratives around polarization, which is a really big issue now. The world is very polarized. It's political polarization, it's ethnic, it's gender. And my approach to that is that in order to shift narrative about any issue, you've got to understand, again, what are the stories, what are the individual beliefs people have? because they lead our narrative. In Summit, I could believe that, oh, you're a terrible person. I've heard that you owe people money. I've heard that you've got multiple wives and multiple children and you've never really <laughs> you know, been in touch with them. So the narrative around you would be that you're dishonest. I don't trust you and I don't you know, want you around. But in order for me to understand that, that narrative, I have to figure out what are the things I've heard about you. And in with any issue, th those are things you go back to. So, for example, in our narrative work around Africa, there's sort of five key frames that Africa has always been depicted as. So it's not just that negative or stereotypical. We know what they are. The lens, the framing of poverty, the framing of poor leadership, framing of corruption, of conflict disease. So it's again, it's about going down to understand what are those individual stories or individual issues that ladder up to a narrative. Once you understand them, then you can address them. The issue of conflict of conflict, actually came up quite recently when I think there were there's a lot of headlines in Wall Street Journal, the Financial Times that coups were beginning to proliferate in Africa again. Africa has 15, 54 countries. In the last 10 or 12 years, there had been only four coups. But when they asked people how many, based on reading the story, how many coups do you think there have been on the, on the continent of Africa in the last couple of years? People would say there must have been 40, 50 because of the way it was written, mm -hmm. right? So you go back and you say, well, actually, the 54 countries, four of them have had coups, 50 of them haven't. There's stability on the continent. And that's how you address narrative, not necessarily by fact, but by storytelling. So tell the stories of the other countries that haven't had truths. And again, so that's the approach to, to, to shifting narrative. It's about understanding the issues that underlie those narratives and then changing mm -hmm. them one story at a time. Yes, thank you for sharing that. And I assume that you bump into those different narratives from time to time or people who try to change that narrative get into that because as you said, the world is polarized. So there are very opposing narratives. So when that happens, how do you or your teams manage that pressure or that conflicting narratives and still stay grounded to, to the commitment towards shifting the narratives versus getting lost in the debates and the polarization of, uh, of two different narratives? I'll, I'll take it back to the thing I said at the beginning was that because we understand how narratives evolve, they're through stories. We are essentially focused on storytelling. Storytelling is powerful. It has, it's the single thing that can inform, educate, influence. If you think about, for example, how 
you got your impression about America, it wasn't probably because you went there. It was because you watched the American movies and you figured out that's, you know, who they are. So it's a very, stories are very powerful and media and films are very powerful platforms and increasingly now it's social media. So we're very focused on our theory of change. It's not about fighting the issue. It's about putting out stories that counter the issue. Because over there's been research that's been done that shows that you can't change people's belief based on fact, because people's beliefs do not come from fact. It comes from perceptions and an ideology and all these other soft things. So you could believe the sky is gray. I could prove to you the sky is blue. I could show you all the data that shows that the sky, but your thing is, no, I still think it's gray. And that's actually where the polarization. So it, a lot of these sort of initiatives around misinformation and disinformation, that, that you can present the facts, but it's actually the stories that change people. Yes, indeed. And, and I think realizing that is, is very important because facts can often lead to, to endless debates and stories which touch people on an emotional level can actually allow them to shift their positions without feeling like they are moving away from a narrative or right. from, right. from a position. Yes. So as you, as you create a new narrative for, for Africa and for the continent and for its place in the world, can you share, us, share a little bit about that? What does the future for Africa look like? For me, I think the, the future is bright. I think the future is very, very bright for a couple of reasons. One is we have a very uh, young population. You have to think about young people and their attitude and what they bring. I think about the fact that creativity and innovation, the way the world is changing, those old dynamics. For example, banking, you needed to have a building and you needed people to go in there and open an account. Now you need a phone and you can have equivalent of what mm -hmm. a bank does, which is hold your money. That opens up the world to, opens up Africa to leapfrog a lot of the things that more developed countries have had to go through. So when I think about the digital revolution, I think Africa is where it's going to benefit us the most because we have got a big step to take. So for me, when I think about the new narrative that I'd like to see around the continent, it's around creativity and innovation because there's just so much that needs to be done and we can't necessarily wait and do it the right way. African problems, African solution, that's what I believe in. Mm -hmm. And also the creativity one for me is critical because when you've got a young population who don't necessarily have access to all the education in the world or the best education in the world and don't have access to a lot of the infrastructure that supports entrepreneurship in America or, or governments that support you with money to pay your rent, social systems, you have to be creative. So I think creativity, resilience, those are things that I think Africa has in abundance and those things mm. don't cost anything. So when you talk about what future do I see for the continent, I think we've got the tools we need to be amazing. And, and I'm not just saying it. I think <laughs> when you look at where the next, yeah, everyone talks about emerging markets, Africa is where they need to come to. This is where this is the next frontier. And I just want us as Africans to not wait for other people to come and do the rent seeking and take from us, but let's be mm. creative and start businesses and be innovative and be creative. Yes. And I, I wish you all the best for creating that. I think, I think this century, maybe in a, in a few decades, we will, I think the progress which the world would have seen, most of it would have been driven from Africa. 
I think that's where all the economic data is already showing that. But as we speak about Africa as one continent, as one world, I also see threats of this in Europe, like with the European Union and in Asian countries with, with groups of countries coming together. But to take it a step further, I, the question which I have for you is like, what, what will it take for us to create like a really a global world of one world? I think there are, you mentioned about digital technology. And I think that is already allowing us to interact and share ideas much more freely without those boundaries, right? There are no borders in the Zoom call. It's so amazing. What can we do or what message would you want to leave for leaders? And this is personally very relevant for me also. Like instead of moving from one Africa, one Europe, one Asia, what can we do to really create a, a borderless society, which is anyways happening in the digital world where we spend most of our time but it's still the narrative. I think it's the borders are there in the narrative. No, it's interesting because I don't know that the borders, the physical borders are a bad thing. I think there's research that shows that some of the most interesting innovations have come out of diversity when there's people with different experiences in the room. And I love that. I think that if they put me and you and a white male and another white female in a room will all bring different perspectives to that idea. So for me, when you say about one world and one this, it sounds to me like we're looking for a homogenous society mm. and I don't want that. I think freedom of movement, freedom of expression, freedom of ideas, absolutely. But one something, no. I think we need to learn to embrace diversity because the, re the fact that we are not very good at it is actually why there is so much polarization because people want us all to be the same. Nobody's allowing that sort of let you live, let me live, let's all live. And I think South Africa, for, for example, I think has been one of the countries that's probably done it quite well. There's a lot of tensions here, but they're different races. They're living together, not necessarily living together. I always say South Africa is a bit like a rainbow. You can see lots of colors, but they don't necessarily merge. You can distinctly see the different colors. And so for me, it's really not about one anything. It's about embracing the diversity of this globe. I, th I think that's a, it's a very important point that you make. What real diversity is what you just said, like to listening to different opinions, to seeing different people for who they are and what they can bring to the table. Yeah. And not just trying to have a set of people from different places and then try to bring them in a unity. So thank you for sharing that. So before we end, where can I, our listeners listen to you or find out more about you and what you do? And so, well, my website address is www.africanofilter.org. So you'll find out all about the work we do there to shift narratives. If you Google me, I do a lot of writing. I, wrote, I write a lot of opinion pieces. I have a regular column in New African Magazine where I put my thoughts down about African issues. And yeah, I've, a lot of the stuff I do is on the internet. That's why I like the internet. You don't even have to keep it in your inbox. You just Google yourself. So <laughs> Google me. That's what I say. Wonderful. And thank you for sharing all your insights and, and your story, Moki. Thank I really you. appreciate you taking time for that. Thank you very much for, for inviting me on. That's it for this episode of Choosing Leadership with Sumit Gupta. I choose leadership every time I record this podcast. And I invite you to do the same. I invite you to design a life of joy, meaning, pride and satisfaction. Not just for yourself, but also for those around you. This is what I do most naturally, to lovingly and gently provoke you 
to help you see your own light, to help you see what you are already capable of. I say what might be uncomfortable for me to say or for you to hear, to show you that all our dreams which have been on hold are within our grasp. If you like the sound of it, do not forget to leave a rating. I invite you to subscribe to my newsletter at deployyourself.com slash newsletter. You can also reach out on LinkedIn, Twitter and Facebook to share any other comment or feedback. I want to thank everyone who contributed to making this show a reality. And thank you for listening. Always remember that you are enough, you are loved and you matter. This is Sumit. Until next time, keep choosing leadership.